ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast, where the Tennessee Stud goes back and looks at not only the history of wrestling, not only the history of his family in wrestling, but his career as a wrestler, a promoter, and so much more. I'm very happy here at the top of the show to once again welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Thank you very much, Brian. Certainly glad to be here. It's always a pleasure. And uh, looking forward to the day. I think we're on number 37 today. Can't believe how fast the numbers are rolling over, but, you know, we're moving on. And uh, we're going to be starting out, I guess, today we're just going to talk about my first month in the ring, actually, in Florida. And some of the some of the uh, people that I wrestled in that first month, kind of where I wrestled, uh, the trips, the buildings, uh, that type of thing. Uh, we're still getting acclimated. We just moved from Georgia to Florida, and we're now starting to hit the road, basically, and uh, do what wrestlers did back in those days. A lot of miles in the cars about to start happening. And uh, so I'm really ready to roll, man. I'm ready to ride. I got my horse all saddled up. I'm ready to go. And I'm ready to hear where you and that horse are going to be going. You know, the last few episodes, Ron, we already talked about Florida, but we really didn't dive in deep. You gave a really good overview of how the office worked, how everything was in operation for Eddie Graham's territory. But now we're really going to get into the nuts and bolts. We're going to get into you coming to Florida from Georgia, starting out who you were working with and where you were working. And let's get going. All right. So we're going to start with the very first match I had in Florida. It was on November 17th, 1970. It was in Tampa. Uh, Tampa's building was a National Guard armory. It was, it was my, in my estimation, though, maybe one of the biggest National Guard armies in, the, in America. It was huge, and they had turned it basically into a wrestling arena. Uh, Eddie must have had a great uh, relationship with the National Guard people or whoever were in charge of this building because they they completely filled the floor with bleachers and with uh, ringside chairs. And they took a big, expansive building with a high roof, uh, no air conditioning, obviously. We're in Florida. We've discussed this a little bit. Had no air conditioning in that building. Uh, windows that pushed out. Uh, and with a little rod that you clacked uh, down the, into position to hold the window out uh, around the entire perimeter of the building, 
but it's but everybody in there, half the people in there are smoking. So you've got that old 1970 feel, and in this building especially, you've got a tremendous amount of heat. Actually, the dressing rooms are in the back of the building. They're on another floor from the event, from the where the ring is, and all the fans are down on the floor below. So you got that heat rising into there. So you're pretty miserable in that building. By the time you get there and you spend 20 minutes and you're trying to put your stuff on, you're probably already sweating by the time you get your gear on. And you really know what you're about to get into once you get out there in the building. Luckily, we're looking at November here. Uh, it's a little bit cooler in Florida that time of year. You're lucky you're going to get some days in which the, the temperature is going to be in the 70, 75 Uh and uh, you're going to have uh, cooler nights, and it's not a problem so much in the winter as it's going to become uh, three months down the road. So in this first night, uh, I go to the building. I, I don't know hardly anyone. I've just basically come from Georgia. Uh, I, I The only person really basically I know is I know Eddie Graham. I know Mike Graham because Mike, his son, had been a friend of mine and my brothers for many, many years. Uh, then I don't know hardly anybody else in the crew. So I go around, I introduce myself as customary, uh, as, as the way the business is handled. And I, I, I meet for the first time a significant number of great stars, uh, Jack Briscoe. I meet... Uh, Tarzan Tyler, I meet Dusty Rhodes, I meet Dick Murdoch, uh, I meet uh, Mephisto, Frankie Kane, uh, I meet uh, the Curtis brothers, uh, uh, Rocky Curtis and and uh, the Smith, the Rocky Smith and Curtis Smith out of Tennessee, the Infernos. Uh, it's just a, it's it, it's pretty pretty phenomenal when you're a young guy. And you enter a dressing room in a territory in which you've never worked, and you start seeing and being introduced to all these people. It's it's pretty amazing as to, to how much talent was there. And it's pretty overwhelming, too, because you're still green. I'm still young, and I'm very nervous about going in the ring, even when I'm not in a new territory. Now, this is my first night in a new territory in the town. Tampa, that's where the office is. That's where everything comes together for the territory in Florida. And then I'm on that Tampa card, and I'm pretty high on the Tampa card. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I wrestle tag partners with Danny Miller. Uh, Danny Miller, uh, I think he's he, he has a brother named Bill. Uh, he's, he's an old-timer. He's been around. Uh, I guess they stick me with him because they figure I'm going to need some help out there. And I actually am going to need some help out there. I'm just not where I'm going to be later on down the road. And nobody is at three or four months into wrestling. They're not, they're not professionals by any stretch of the imagination. We're going to work against the Infernos. Uh, and they are managed by that night. They're going to be managed by Frankie Kane, the great Mephisto. Uh, Frankie Kane is one of the all-time great workers, uh, just has a phenomenal re reputation. Uh, he's going to work for me in Southeastern down the road. 
uh, a lot of these people right here that I'm going, I just introduced Danny Miller doesn't work for me, but, uh, Rocky Smith and Curtis Smith are both going to work for me in Southeastern wrestling. Uh, Mephisto, Frankie Kane's going to work for me. So we're going to be introducing a lot of wrestlers, uh, different guys, uh, a lot of talent. And, and, uh, it was just a great experience that first night going out there, being a part of it, uh, Pretty decent crowd. Uh, Tampa was not selling out every night. It was not doing capacity business. Uh, I don't really don't know because they had great talent. I just I think that for whatever reason, it just wasn't gelling for them like it's going to. That's territory in the next four years that I'm going to be involved here is just going to skyrocket. It's going to become the hottest territory in the in the world. And uh, I'm going to see its growth in, in, the, in the number of great wrestlers that are there. Just the talent is going to get so much better over the next four years. Uh, the booking is going to get better. The program itself and the television program and its production is going to get better. It just becomes a stronger business over the next four years. And I'm lucky to be involved in it because I'm going to be able to before it's over here, expand into other things. They're going to place me in the West Palm as a promoter, basically. Uh, I have the opportunity to run my own town and to, to handle the advertising and to handle a lot of the televisions, uh, things like that. So I'm going to really cut my eye teeth in this next four years. This is my first match, and it it's a pretty decent match. Uh, I don't remember. It's pretty hard. I probably had 5,000, 6,000 matches in my lifetime. So it's, it's pretty hard for me to remember a lot of them in particular. As time goes by, there are matches that stand out in my mind. This is not one that I really remember the, any tremendous details about. But we're there in Tampa, first night. Uh, this territory, this Florida territory, it's at Orlando on Monday. It's a Tampa on Tuesday. It's a Miami Beach on Wednesday. It's a Jacksonville on Thursday. On Friday, it's a Fort Lauderdale. And occasionally, it's a Tallahassee on Friday, depending on which way you get set. Saturdays, we're going to do Nassau. We're in that Nassau frame, time frame. Uh, on Saturdays, and occasionally when you're not in Nassau, you're going to be in a small town called Lakeland, about 40 miles outside of Tampa. So that's pretty much this scenario every week. You're rolling from these towns. The first night, I'm here in Tampa. The second night, I go to Miami Beach, uh, to the Miami Beach Auditorium. It's uh, That's on the 18th of November, 1970, and I wrestle partners with my dad, against the same team, the Infernos. Uh, I'm sure that was a great match. Uh, Dad is was a, 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 a tremendous veteran at that point, obviously. Uh, we had worked with him quite a bit in Georgia uh, in six-man tags. Uh, sometimes we'd split up individually and work with him, and uh, I'd take a night off or Rob would take a night off, and he would be the other partner. Uh, we learned a lot from dad and then dad always took care of us in the ring and he made the matches better. He was just a fabulous partner for us because he was just so experienced and he never got lost. 
And that's what happens with a lot of young wrestlers. They get lost out there and then they, they lose their timing and they, they get overwhelmed by the crowd's reaction or they get, they can get so out unfocused all of a sudden that it just makes it really difficult for them to, to get it done out there, to get that continuity, to build toward a great match and to build toward a great finish. All those things have to happen. And with these young guys, and like I was, I'm a young guy, uh, that uh, that's a that's a difficult thing f- to get a hold of, and it's going to take time for that to start happening. Now we're in Miami Beach. Let's just talk a minute uh, about that's a that's a special place uh, because of of the guys that actually run part of that building. Chris Dundee is involved with that building. He is involved with he has a gym a boxing gym there it's called the fifth street gym it's uh, one of the most famous boxing training places in the world his brother is angelo dundee angelo trains some of the greatest fighters of all time and one of them happens to be ali uh he just so there's Chris there. He's he's a he's a fixture in Miami. He's moved to Miami and set up his gym over there and he's put Miami on the boxing world's map. Uh so one of the things he accomplishes on February 25th, 1964, is he's able to book Ali against Sonny Liston in which it's Ali's first title shot. Uh Sonny Liston is a great star. Been there and around boxing for a long time. And uh, that night, Ali knocks out Liston. And that, that, in my opinion, one of the most famous boxing pictures of all time is Ali standing over Liston, who's down and out. And he's got his fist all curled up and he's giving him that nasty look that Ali was great at. And it's a, to me, one of the most famous boxing pictures of all time. Uh, so all this is, takes place in Miami Beach Auditorium. This is a nice building. It is air conditioned, by the way. So it's it's that it makes it something that you really want to look forward to if you're a Florida wrestler to get in one of those air conditioned buildings one night. So we have that there. Uh, that kind of gives you an idea of what's going on in Miami Beach at the time. Uh, Chris is there very, and Chris is very close with my dad. And he's also very close with Eddie. They're personal friends. So I get to meet that night not only some of the other new people that I hadn't met the night before, new wrestlers, but I also get to meet Angelo Dundee and Chris Dundee. Uh, and that's just part of where I'm headed in the business. I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm highly involved with the promotion because I have a personal relationship, not just with my dad, but with Eddie and with, with, uh, the whole operation. So I'm a figure that, that gets a little bit of a special treatment when it comes to that type of thing. They don't take a normal young guy. That's his second night in there and go introducing him to Chris Dundee and Angelo Dundee. Uh, that's, that's a, something that I was rare because of my relationship and, and who I am and for the family that I come from, that I'm going to get some t- special treatment. And I get a little bit of special treatment that night in Miami Beach. A few questions for you, Ron, about all this. Obviously, your first night is November 17th in Tampa. How long before that had you come to Florida from Georgia? How many days were you there already? And where were you staying? Where did you live? 
Well, I left Georgia and I had about five days before I started in Tampa. I had to, five days to take my wife there and find an apartment. Uh, and she's pregnant at that point. Then we find an apartment out close to the University of South Florida. It's on the north side of Tampa. And it's a, it's a nice little place. It's nothing really fancy. Uh, we're not expecting to get rich here. We're, we're, I'm a young guy just starting. And I, I already mentioned things aren't really great here. There are times here I'm going to travel uh, great distances and make $25 a night. Uh, I'm young. Uh, I'm not going to let that bother me because my heart's in it. My soul's in it. And, and it's where I'm going to be and it's what I want to do. So I'm willing to sacrifice. So, yeah, I don't have much time here. I have like five days. It takes me three or four of those days to kind of get set up. I got to get a little furniture, uh, moved in. Uh, and uh, so then I'm wrestling pretty well. Uh, you know, I never took many days off, uh, especially when I was young. I, I just like to work every night. Uh, I was upset sometimes when I'd look and I didn't have, I had a night off. I would be like, why? Why do I have a night off? I, I want to work. So, yeah, that's kind of what it was. About five-day break between Georgia and the starting date in Tampa. And once I get started in Tampa, I get to rolling. The office is in Tampa. Obviously, that's the headquarters of Championship Wrestling from Florida. But are you at all tempted to try to get something closer to Miami, considering your background going to school there? Yeah, I love I loved the Miami area, obviously. And uh, having played basketball there at the University of Miami, I would like to have been down there. But I realized that... that yeah, this is the the home of your territory, and and then as all territories were back in the day, it didn't make any difference. If you're in Carolina, you're going to be in Charlotte, and when you're in Charlotte, you're with all the other wrestlers, and it made it easy and simple because back in those days, you weren't flying a lot; you were driving, so you needed to have some friends that you could carpool with. Basically, you had four guys to get in the car with. You might go with Danny Miller and you might go with, uh, Roy Lee Welch and you might go with Joe Flaherty and myself. There are four guys and, uh, they take turns driving. One guy drives one night, another guy drives the next night, the next night, somebody else drives. So you kind of needed that the relationship and you kind of needed to be in the town where the territory was situated so that you had the convenience of sharing your vehicles because we're going to start driving son i mean we start driving right away the first night i'm in tampa that's home but the second night i'm in miami beach that's an eight hour round trip it's four hours down there and four hours back so you're spending a third of your day on the road and i'm going to find out in this territory that's going to be pretty much the standard you talked about how you were nervous going into the ring still. You were a rookie. You had just arrived in Florida. Do you think you hit it well, or do you think the guys who were getting in the ring with you in these early days in Florida knew that you were nervous? Oh, gosh, yeah. They had to know you were nervous, and they were scared, too, because, you know, I was a pretty big dude, and and they were and, – and, and my dad had a reputation of being stiff in the ring, and they were looking at me like, geez, man, you're a lot bigger than your dad. And, you know, I'm hoping like hell you ain't going to hurt me tonight. And I was always out there trying my best not to hurt somebody because you couldn't get that reputation started. You didn't want to get people uh, scared to get in the ring with you. Uh, so it was it was kind of a real fine line that you had to walk as a young guy. Uh, they were always 
And when I start getting more experience, I find it. The, I feel I, I felt their feelings about being in the ring with a guy that's really young and doesn't know what he's doing. Sometimes it can be a dangerous situation. Ron, last time and a little bit here earlier, we talked about the heat, how some of these buildings, if not the majority of the buildings, did not have air conditioning and you were wrestling, even though it's November, in pretty hot venues. I am curious, although it may not be a Florida-related answer, where's the coldest place you ever wrestled? Uh, let's see. I would say uh, Sapporo, Japan. Uh, in 1983. <laughs> I did not expect that. <laughs> uh, Sapporo. Yes. Uh, gosh, almighty. Uh, I was in uh, Japan for the entire month of December in 1983 and wrestled all over the country. And it was cold everywhere. But the further north you went, it was just unbearable. And I remember Sapporo being maybe the coldest spot that I wrestled in the entire time I was in Japan. And in those buildings in Japan, it's just like these armories and these buildings that we're talking about. This is 1983. It's, it's, it's 13 years later. They don't have any air conditioning. They don't have any heat. And yeah, I would, it was a tag team. Uh, Barry Wyndham and I were tag team partners every night for an entire month. And we just begged each other to get a tag just to get in the ring because you froze out there on the apron. You would literally be shaking and just, I would just say, Barry, get me in, man. You got to tag me. I got to get <laughs> off. You know, we begged each other to get in, you know, to be inside the ring because it was so terribly cold, horrible cold. So, yeah, I think Sapporo, Japan, off the top of my head. Now, I've been into Canada and, and places like that where it's very cold as well. But for some reason, I don't know, maybe because Japan's an island, uh, you just it's it's a small country and a lot of water. And Sapporo, you're basically I, it's a lot of water up there. So uh, it was it was really tough. And then Sapporo, Japan. Well, before we suffer any frostbite here, Ron, let's get back to the heat. Let's get back to November 1970 in Florida. Yes. So we got the we got to Miami. I've wrestled on Tuesday in Tampa. I wrestle on Wednesday in Miami. Uh I'm gonna go on Saturday. I'm off for a couple of days because I'm just getting there and they really are they've got to work me into all the bookings and things. So so my Saturday trip is the first uh, private plane flight with Lester and we go to Nassau. Uh I wrestle Eduardo Perez. Eduardo Perez is an old timer. Uh, gosh, he was horrified of me. Uh, you know, he, I worked with him a lot, you know, cause I'm young and they stuck me with him quite a bit. And I'm sure he hated every one of them because I'm pretty stiff. I'm, I'm pretty difficult. And, uh, and when I do things, I want to do them where they look good. And I, and I don't care about, you know, if I'm going to hit you, I'm going to hit you hard. And, uh, you know, the, a lot of guys didn't want that and they didn't like that. So, so, you know, so I end up basically, I work about three times in my first week, second week, I'm going to work my first time in Fort Myers, Florida. It's a Tuesday night town. If you don't get to work Tampa, the only other town running in Florida is Fort Myers, another national guard army, very small one, fewer windows, more heat, just terrible. And it worse than Tampa's, uh, uh, Tampa's army. It's, it's really a tough venue to work in. Uh, and so I'm going to work there for the, and I'll have my first match ever with Ronnie Garvin. Uh, 
it's really amazing. When I look back at this now, I'm going to have hundreds of matches with Ronnie Garvin. He's probably going to be the first person that I really get to work into main event type matches with. And it's all going to start in Florida. And here I'm about my fourth match there, and I'm in the ring with Ronnie Garvin. We're going to have some tremendous matches. He's going to help me because he's young. But he's 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 experienced. He's he he started at a younger age than I did, and he carries me a lot in these early years in nineteen early seventy early seventy one. He really carries me a lot. He teaches me a lot about working and how to work matches and how to work longer matches and everything else. Uh, the next night, I'm back in Miami Beach. We're on a Wednesday again. I'm taking that long ride. Now that Fort Myers trip's about five hours round trip. To get down there the next night, you're eight hours to get there and get back. Uh, I'm working a six-man tag with Danny Miller, Jose Lothario. And we're wrestling against the great Mephisto and the Infernos, six-man tag. Jose Lothario is a special person to me. He has a special significance because he was extremely friendly and and had a great relationship with my dad and and when we were in tucson in 1962 and dad went the first time to arizona to run arizona he brought in lothario lothario lived in the house with us him and his wife uh so i really got to know jose uh, great and he what a great individual and super person he was uh and he's a tremendous wrestler tremendous talent and he goes on to train. He trains great, great wrestlers. He goes into Houston later on, and he's going to train Shawn Michaels. Uh, there are going to be a lot of others, that guys that uh, owe everything they know to Jose Lothario. But though I'm in a tag. So there I am. I'm a young guy. I'm just now starting out, and I look across, uh, you know, at who I'm wrestling, and then I'm standing by Jose Lothario, who – who 10 years earlier, almost 10 years earlier, was, I was just a kid. I was in the eighth grade, you know, and now I'm standing beside him. I'm actually wrestling with him as a partner. It's pretty darn remarkable to me how things have changed. And it doesn't seem like it's been a long time, but that gives me a great opportunity to wrestle with, wrestle with two great guys, Danny Miller and Jose. Uh, the next night, I'm in Jacksonville for the first time ever. Jacksonville is a big coliseum. I'd say 12,000 round building, 12,000 seats. It's run by Don Curtis. Don Curtis is one of the great all-time, not just the worker, but a great, he's just a phenomenal athlete. And he he takes Jacksonville seriously. When you go to Jacksonville, Curtis is the first person you see. And you don't have to spend two minutes with Don Curtis to realize this guy's intense. He's really got business on his mind. And he he's really taking care of Jacksonville. It's one of the bigger cities, one of the better towns. And it's like that thing that, that we described a little bit. They got the Milo and you've got the Pat Kelly down there in Fort Myers, Milo in Orlando. You've got Don Curtis in Jacksonville. So uh, he's, and that night I wrestle, I wrestle uh, with Bob Root as a partner against the Infernos. Uh, probably had a pretty decent match. Bob Root is just about as green as I am. He's probably been working 
six months longer than I am, than I have been, but he's still a young guy too. Uh, we got two young guys in there with uh, Curtis and Rocky Smith, and uh, it's it. We're probably a handful for those guys. <laughs> I mean, Bob Roop's a big dude too, and uh, got that Olympic background, in which he was a Greco-Roman, a big-time Greco-Roman wrestler in the Olympics. So that that's a that's probably a bit. It was a great match. Uh, the next night, I'm going to go to Fort Lauderdale. It's seven and a half hours there and back. I mean, you're, we're running some miles now, uh, and it's a National Guard Army. It's about the size of the one in Fort Myers and just as hot. Uh, I wrestle with Jose Lothario and, uh, against the same two Infernos. Uh, I seem to be wrestling those Infernos quite a bit in my first months there, months there uh, because I think they, they're, they're experienced and they're, they're good at handling me. Because I, I need that. I need somebody to uh, really uh, lead lead things for me. Uh, the last night of the week, that Saturday, I wrestle in Lakeland, Florida. It's a small building, extremely hot. Uh, and I wrestle, Bob Roop and I wrestle the Infernals again. So that gives us second week. Uh, third week is pretty much the same, except I make my first shot in Orlando on a Monday. Uh, I'm going to wrestle in the Orlando Sports Stadium, it's called. It's a strange-looking building. It has no sides on it. It has a roof on it, but the sides are kind of like closed down. You you, you like the lead, I guess it's a plastic paper that's pretty thick that they dropped it down if it was cool. If it was hot, they rolled them up and tied them up. And it's a pretty decent building. I, I would say it would hold probably 5,000, maybe a little more, about the size of the armory in Tampa, somewhere around 5,000 fans. Uh, and it's the first meeting I ever have. I meet Milo, Milo Steinborn and his son, Dickie. Uh, first time I'd met both of them. I'd seen Dickie wrestle in Atlanta quite a bit. Dick Steinborn's great, tremendous talent. Milo's still a weightlifter. He still looks strong as a bull. And he's probably, I'd say he's probably 70 years old, and he looks like he's 45. I was amazed at his, his how he looked. Uh, that night, I wrestled Eduardo Perez. Uh, wrestled him a couple of times now. Uh, I'm going to get a lot of Eduardo, and he's going to get a lot more of me, I'm sure, than what he wants. Uh, Tampa the next night, Danny Miller and I wrestle the Infernos. Uh, on December 2nd, I'm back in Miami Beach. I wrestle the first Japanese I ever wrestled uh, in Florida, uh, Oki Shikina. Smaller guy, uh, Japanese, short like a Japanese, built a little bit like a tank, uh, kind of like a Tor Tanaka. Uh, uh, similar build to Tanaka, not as big as Tanaka, but a pretty big bruising Japanese guy. Uh, and I don't remember the match, but I'm pretty sure knowing uh, Shakina and knowing me being a young guy, I'm sure he was not real happy to be in the ring with me either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I keep saying this, but it's really true because uh, as time goes by, I, I, I learned to work, but I always have a reputation among the boys as being stiff. And, you know, guys didn't really like to work with me. They knew they were going to have a pretty enough, pretty rough evening if they were in the ring with me. And so I guess Oki got his first taste of me. 
the next night, I'm back in Jacksonville with Eduardo Perez on Saturday night. I'm right back there in Nassau again. Now, we've already talked about Nassau in, that, in the Super Stud cast. Uh, we're going to talk about Nassau here, but in the Super Stud cast, if fans want to really get a feel for what Nassau is all about in the Bahamas, and I, to me, it's one of the most remarkable and crazy places on earth to ever wrestle in, uh, I invite them to take a listen to that Stud Cast, Super Stud Cast number three that's out and available now because it's, it, it's an experience wrestling in Nassau every time you go there. So that's that week's third weekend. I work five times. I work five times the second week. Fourth week, I'm going to work five times again. I'm going to start out uh, wrestling uh, in, in Orlando, Von Stroheim, a Skull Von Stroheim. He's a big German dude. Uh, I'm going to wrestle a bunch of those big German dudes before it's all over. I get sometimes a little... Uh, forgetful as to which one is which you know there's hans schmidt and you got the skull von stroheim and you've got the von bonners and and i got my taste of all those big german guys and uh so skull gets his first taste to me too and and uh i believe i won these matches uh, uh i have a record of all these matches i wouldn't know this uh, and and i'm really pleased to have it because it tells me it kind of gets me back to who I was really working with, and it gives us an idea of who's working in that territory at that time. So I get Skull von Stroheim on Monday. I get him in Tampa on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I'm back in Miami Beach. It's me and Joe Flaherty and Bob Roop and a six-man tag against Great Mephisto, Saito, Mr. Saito, and Oki Shakina. Now, there's a three-man team right there, I Gosh almighty, and you've got Joe Flaherty is just like me, six, seven months in the business. Bob Roof's maybe a year or a little less, and I'm pretty much just starting four or five months. Those guys must have had a nightmare that night. I don't know how the hell they handled that, but that had to be really tough for them. Uh, Jacksonville the next night, Danny Miller and Jose Lothario and I. Uh, against J.C. Dykes. First time J.C. is, I've seen him in the picture. Uh, he's their actual manager. And I don't know how he's in the ring that night, because that's crazy. I don't remember ever wrestling J.C. Dykes. Uh, he was he was their manager. He was a smaller guy. Uh, must have been some type of special arrangement that night to which he was in there, had to partner with them, because uh, normally they wouldn't wrestle with him. And on that Saturday night, I wrestle in Lakeland, just outside of Tampa against Ronnie Garvin. So in my first month there, I work 18 times. Uh, I work in Tampa, Miami Beach, Jacksonville, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, Fort Myers, Lakeland, and Nassau in my first month there. So it's pretty much a... It's a pretty much a grind. I mean, it's a happening thing. Uh, you're driving every night. Uh, you're in the car a lot of hours every day. You don't get much gym time. You have to really prepare for it. And uh, But it's it's a, still a great experience for me. I love it. I really just, from the very beginning, love Florida, and I love working here. And I could handle the heat or I probably wouldn't have, but uh, I'd been accustomed to it. I played ball at the University of Miami, and we used to work out outside a lot. 
And so I know what the sweat's all about, and I know what all, all that's about. I have to imagine that putting a stiff young worker in the ring with Ron Garvin is an interesting experiment. But on the topic of you being stiff, and you've talked about this a little bit here today, if you can go back, if you could talk to Skull Von Strohein or Oki Shikina, what would they say? What would be the biggest complaint your opponents would have about your stiffness? Was it a punch to the throat? Was it a drop kick to the nose? What do you think your opponent's biggest complaint would be? I think uh, just the fact that you, you learn that as you start, as you become a better wrestler, you learn to just relax. And when you're really in the first six months of your career, you don't ever relax. You can't relax. You, you, you're tied up and you're stressed out and you're just nervous as heck in the dressing room. And you're going to take that into the ring with you. And it's going to be difficult for them to calm you down. It's like they have to calm you down. And then that first six months, you don't calm down very much. That's going to come later with time. You have to get past that nervousness to be able to loosen up out there in the ring. The great workers are just, they, you know, I, I'm going to tell you, Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler, to me, is a great worker. You don't know you're, you're there. You don't know where he is. He can have you by the hair, and you don't feel it. I mean, he can hit you in the mouth, and you don't feel it. I mean, it's like... It's like the great workers are just smooth and everything is so loose and it's so simple. Sometimes I used to get afraid that some guys like that are so good that I, they'd do something to me and I, I, I wouldn't sell it because I didn't feel it. I kind of liked the idea of feeling it and it made it easier for me to, to, to sell it. And uh, so, you know that's a it's really a different experience as, as when you're young you got you just it you've got to learn to relax and and I'm still in that stage here where I'm not totally relaxed and far from it Ron Garvin of course has a reputation for being rather stiff in the ring especially with maybe some of the undercard guys but at that point in time in 1970 was he already that stiff how was it working with him He was stiff and I liked it I I really liked working with him uh, because I could feel him. I, I knew when he did stuff to me, and uh, and I, I never got lost. Uh, I I I I become very close with him. I, I have an attachment to him. We have great matches from the very first one for for years. He's there for a couple of years. The first couple of years I'm in Florida, and I work with him. Like I said, hundreds of times. And he is such a great worker, and he makes me look so good, and I learn so much from him. Uh, it's a pleasure to work with Ronnie Garvin for me. He's one of, and he's going to come with me too. He's going to come to the Southeastern in Knoxville too. Uh, and there's a lot of these people that are going to come and wrestle for me and with me uh, in my company, my first company. And he's one of those guys that does it and stays there with me forever. He, he he never leaves. Basically, uh, Knoxville. He's he's a he becomes a Knoxville boy, just like a lot of other guys that go there during southeastern days. When you go back and you look through these results, it is quite apparent the Florida connection that Southeastern had. How much of that talent were people you had relationships with from your days in Florida? And on that topic, Bob Roop is just starting out, like you said. At this point in time in 1970, is Bob Roop already Eddie Graham's golden boy, and is the snake pit? already in operation or things already happening in that building 
when uh, when no one's around? Good question. Uh, yes, Snake Pit is it's in its infancy. Uh, the basically the only two guys that are spending any time in there during the days, early days before they go to towns, is Bob Roop and Hiro Matsuda. Uh, Jack Briscoe will go down there and join that process every once in a while. And, and I'm going to get to that snake pit. I'm really probably going to get to it in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I start to, to join that process too. I just want to be a part of it. I want to learn that type of stuff. And, and the snake pit is just a, it's, it's, we're going to do episodes on the snake pit. We'll do two episodes at least I would think on the snake pit and maybe more, because it is like it's on un, it's unheard of i don't believe anybody else has one of those there's no territory that i'm aware of uh maybe Stu Schwartz i mean uh Stu Hart Stu Hart in Calgary Stu up there in Calgary's got that basement that ring in the basement and he's got those little nail holes in the wall and i've heard stories from Archie Goldie who is the Mongolian stomper about Stu training him and he would pick him up and drive him onto the nails. The nails would stick in his back and rip down his back and, uh, and he'd want to quit. And that's he, and he said, Stu always did it when, when Archie was getting, getting him, Archie was about to get somewhere and take him down and, and do something to him. And Stu would drive him on the nails cause Stu knew where the nails were. <laughs> so, I mean, so there weren't many snake pits in wrestling at that time. And this, the snake pit in Florida, it's there. Uh, Bob Roop's already a part of it. Uh, Hero's a part of it. I'm going to join into it. There will be a couple of other guys that occasionally show up there. But it's going to be a small group that, that come there and spend any time on a regular basis. And we're going to return to Florida in just a moment. But real quick, a word about the latest Super Studcast Caribbean Chaos. The Tennessee Stud has set the podcast world ablaze with his unique concept of an honest and insightful deep dive into wrestling history with his Andre the Giant and Ron Wright Super Studcast. He began with one giant of the sport and followed with the introduction of another, less well-known but just as interesting. In Super Studcast 3, he moves from personalities to places on our planet. The Caribbean is a magnificently beautiful chain of islands and countries stretching thousands of miles off the southeastern coast of North America. Some living within this paradise have always been known for strange rituals and cultures, and the stud personally believes that this is one reason why this forbidden zone is known as the Devil's Triangle. Super Studcast number three will take you inside the Devil's Triangle and expose you to a wrestling world as unimaginable and alien as anywhere on the planet. Get ready to be astonished and amazed by what you hear. It can only be appropriately described by one who has experienced it and just happens to be one of the greatest storytellers of all time, your Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. This is why they call these two-hour experiences Super Studcast. Now, sit back, prop up your feet, close your eyes, and imagine the breeze rustling through the palm fronds as we begin the ride 90 miles off the beaches of Miami in Nassau, Bahamas. This is Super Studcast number three. There it is once again. Go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast to access the super studcast as well as the rest of the story we will have more about that later on in the program but ron here we are 
We're returning to Florida. You've been working, what'd you say, 18 times in your first month? Yes. 18 times in the first month. Uh, second month, it's going to pick up a little bit. So uh, what I want to talk about here is I've wrestled a couple of times in Tampa, and it's the major town. Uh, I'm young. Uh, I'm not well known. I'm lucky to have the Tampa shots. I didn't realize until I got booked in Fort Myers that that uh, I might not see Tampa anymore. So I'm I, I work Tampa twice, and then I get start getting booked in Fort Myers. I'm going to stay there in Fort Myers. I won't be back to Tampa for at least three months plus. And then after that, it's going to be a while before I ever become a regular in Tampa. And I think it's because I'm just not ready for it yet. Uh, and I think it would have been a lot of wrestlers in my position that would have disliked the fact that they didn't get to work in Tampa. It was one of the bigger towns. It was one of the better payoff cities. So if you weren't on that card, you weren't going to do near the near the type of money that you needed to to make money as a wrestler. So they sent me to Fort Myers. And, and what they did, though, and it was really great for me, and I don't know if it was somebody's idea, whether it was uh, Leo Garibaldi, who was booking at the time, or whether my dad probably talked to him and said, you know, the kid don't need to be in Tampa. He's not good enough to be in Tampa, and he needs to send him to Fort Myers. But I, when they sent me to Fort Myers, I, I became the main eventer in Fort Myers. Uh, promoter down there was a guy named Pat Kelly, and he liked me. Uh, he liked my matches because he was a pretty stiff guy, and he was a big guy. He was about 6'4", and probably weighed about 250, and this was back in 1970. He's a pretty big dude, and he and he probably was pretty stiff, too, in the ring. He really liked my work, and he complimented me. Every match I had in Fort Myers, he would come at the end of the night because I was main event for him just about every week. And he would tell me, you know, how much he enjoyed watching my matches and how hard I worked and how much he appreciated it. And so it was a great experience for me because I got to wrestle guys up further up the card because they they would send those guys down there. Every once in a while, they would throw Pat Kelly a bone and give him a Dusty Rhodes or give him a Dick Murdoch or give him some Tarzan Tyler or somebody like that. And when those guys came there, it was a lot of times it was me that they wrestled. And so it gave me an opportunity to work these single matches with this really good guys. And I was drawing money people for some reason and i'm not sure exactly what it was i got over there and people liked me in that town and so pat kelly had this nice little armory there it would hold i'm gonna say 1500 maybe 2000 people max and and he'd never done big business he told me himself about third week there he says ron i've never sold this out and I said, well, Pat, we're going to sell this sucker out for you. And we started about four weeks in, filling her up pretty good. Uh, Ronnie Garvin and I work a program there that lasts for months. Absolutely outrageous program in which we lost losing leaves, came back with masks on, did all of these things. 
and we we just sold his building out week after week after week. They would they would turn them away by the hundreds. They would be standing outside at at starting time, and there was no way. Sometimes maybe more outside than inside. It was really good for Pat. It was really good for me. It gave me a chance to work in in big time programs and be involved in big time matches. And at the same time, it worked really well for all of us because we were all doing well. I was making a better payoff wrestling in Fort Myers than I would have second match in Tampa. So it was a good deal for me. It turned me into somewhat a main eventer early on in my career in my first year. That just doesn't much happen to guys. I kind of became a main event guy, at least in that one town, and actually started working my way up the card because of the experience I was getting out of being in Fort Myers. How was the pay in Florida in general, especially compared to Georgia? It was less uh, at that time. I don't think they were doing as well. Georgia, in my opinion, had a better crew. Uh, they just had, and they and Tom Ernesto was a super booker. Uh, they just really had things going there in Atlanta. My dad's still involved in Atlanta. There's a lot of things that are about to happen here, Brian. Uh, Dad's still involved. He owns part of the Atlanta promotion. Uh, Lester Welch is down there uh, flying his plane and and running the Caribbean. Uh, He's got a portion of Florida. And within the next year, they're going to basically trade their stocks. Uh, Dad is going to leave Georgia, and Lester is going to go to Georgia. That's going to precipitate a big battle between Lester and 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 Greg Uncle. Uh, it's also going to going to bring a a better promoter, a better mind to the Florida office, and that's Dad. And Dad's going to come and and have things that he's going to offer and ideas. And for the first time, he's going to he's going to say we need to put guys on a guarantee. Uh, most territories at this point in the early seventies, late sixties, there was no guarantee. You come in and work for whatever the money is, but he's going to say, we need to get better talent and put them on a guarantee. Maybe one of the first times it's ever been done. And that's where Florida is going to start to change. It's going to become bigger than Atlanta. It's going to become a better paying territory. It's going to have fill up their buildings more because that talent that they're going to put on on these guarantees is going to make a huge difference. So much of the early super, uh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Well, Ron, I can't wait to hear where we're going to go with this Florida story next week. And we have a few listener questions that we're going to go to in a second, but I did want to ask you one thing. If you go back and you listen to the early episodes of the Studcast, you hear about the history of your family in wrestling and, of course, your grandfather, Roy. During this period of time, when you're breaking into the business and then going to Florida, at any point do you talk to him? Does he does he know what you're up to? I think he probably does. But, uh, no, I don't talk to him. But I will tell you this story. Uh, Rob goes there. When I come to Florida, Rob leaves Georgia and he goes to Nashville. Uh, he's going to go into a situation that's just phenomenal for him. Jerry Jarrett is starting to wrestle, and Jerry is making, and he's wrestling partners with a Japanese guy named Tojo Yamamoto. Yeah. Tojo is over. 
He's huge star in there. He's been there for many, many years. He's been a heel for 10 years, and now he's turned babyface, and he is just rocking the planet there. He's working a lot of tags. They have a lot of tag matches going on up there in Tennessee. And uh, Tojo and Jerry Jarrett are partners. Now, Jerry has something that goes on in his life. It's a personal issue, whatever it is. I have no idea. Just about the time Rob goes to Nashville, Jarrett, uh, backs away from the business for a little bit and Tojo's left without a partner. And somehow they take Rob, this real young guy, just like I am. And they put him right on top as a partner with Tojo Yamamoto. And Rob is making, this is 1970. Now I'm doing, I'm doing 400, uh, 500 a week in, in Florida. That's Rob's making, not bad for yeah. 1970. Yeah, not, not nothing, nothing bad. Rob's making 1,200, 1,500. <laughs> wow. Yeah, serious. In money. Nashville, that's amazing. In Nashville, in Nashville, because they are just on fire there. But they're doing things differently, and and they're going to to mess things up. Is basically what I call it. Mess it up. There, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood there, and those matches are totally different. In Florida, it's all wrestling still. It's based around the name wrestling, and the sport is wrestling. And there's very little blood, and you got to go out there and work hard, and you give them a lot of wrestling and a lot of up and down. Uh, in Tennessee, they're just fighting. They're just fighting, and they got the gimmicks, and they got everything. They're, they're busting each other with this or that and the chisels and all that Ron Wright stuff. It's just a different world up there. They're drawing big money, but that won't last because you got to have that wrestling. You got to have that stable stuff. And in my opinion, it's based upon the sport of wrestling. And if you're not doing enough of it, eventually you're not going to be doing any business either. As I mentioned before, we have a few really good questions here this week, Ron. So let's get to these questions from the listeners. Our first one is from Philip Hammond Allen in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And his question is, was there ever a night you had booked everything right? had great talent, expected a full house, to the rafters, and no one showed up. What was your worst night as a promoter financially, and were there cities you ran at a loss just to keep your crew working? Good question. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes on all counts. In yes short, on yes. all of these. Yeah, <laughs> yes on everything here, basically. I mean, uh, there were nights in which you had a great card, uh, and you got disappointed, but the reason was, is not because of anything I did. The reason was that you're in Tennessee. Once I started with Southeastern, on my own first own company, then I would get snow. Snow kills things in the South. When you get snow, people just don't know how to drive in it. They scared to death. They all go and hit the stores and they're going to be in the house for three days and they're all worried about getting around. And I've had cards there that I was really disappointed with the crowd, but it was mostly because there was an event, a weather event that affected it. That was the only thing that, that kept them doing from doing what I expected them to do would be the weather. Now, 
when I first went there, that was a it wasn't even a territory. It was just a town of Knoxville. And I had to create a territory. I had to get on a couple of other television stations and be able to have two bigger cities. I had the Tri-Cities, Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol up there in the northeastern part of Tennessee. And I had Knoxville. And then I had a lot of small towns around that. So there were a lot of times in my first year in trying to get that promotion off the ground that I did not make money. <laughs> I mean, I lost money on many, many nights. I remember taking extra money with me to the town because I would pay at the town and I would anticipate I'm going to lose a significant amount of money tonight. And I would pay the guys decently because I wanted to keep them and, and I would try to keep their attitudes up. Like, you know, guys, this is not going to stay this way. We're going to build this sucker. We're going to make it happen. And, and guys would stay with me. They believed in me and they believed that where we were headed and what I was doing was going to make it at some point. But there's a lot of nights that I did just what this gentleman's talking about. I had to pay these guys to keep my crew working. I could have said, no, let's just give the money back. And there were probably times when there were only 100 people in the building. When it would, it would have been real easy to say, let's give them the money back. But I kept thinking that that they're fans. These are my basic fans. And, and what I need to do is I need to go out there on a night when there's only 100 of them and have the best matches I possibly can wrestle just like there was 10,000 there. And that's what built it. That's what made it happen because those fans came, they were thinking they're probably going to go home. They ain't even going to wrestle. And when they got the matches they got, they went home, I think saying, gosh, almighty, these guys are unbelievable. And they came back again and again and again. And that's what you have to do to build a territory uh, into a monster, you've got to, you've got to, you're going to start really small. And, uh, and that's what I did. I started at rock bottom and it took me probably a year and a half to get it to, off the ground basically. But once it went, it flew like a, yeah, like a 747. It was just monster business once I got it up and running. But yeah, there's a lot of times that you have to be committed as a promoter and a, as a wrestler to go out there and give your all before a small group of people rather than a big, huge crowd. I used to like to tell my guys back in the day when I started, I would say, guys, I hope you're of a frame of mind that you're going to work just as hard for that crowd out there tonight as you would for one with Knoxville's Coliseum sold out. And I wanted guys to have that attitude that I don't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference, guys, whether it's a big house or a small house. It makes a difference how hard we work as to how we're going to do next time we come here. In terms of towns that lose money, what would you stick with longer? A town that had been successful but was on hard times or a new town that you're looking to establish that had never had regular wrestling in it before? Well, you you want to you want to take those big towns that had done good in the past. They're they're probably not doing well for a reason, and and it's usually something that's happening in the ring, it, and that's it. That's the whole focus, and so you got to step back and take a look at what are we doing here, and are we doing the right things to get this town off its butt? 
and you got a town that's got a history. There's a reason that it ain't that it doesn't have the crowd anymore, and the, you you can get back to that big crowd again, but you got to work extra hard to do that. Now you got a small town. Knoxville was a great great example of this. It only had two major cities. You only had two towns that ran every week, and everywhere else was a spot show. And these spot shows were small towns, but they were critical to the to the success of that territory. And these small towns, so to speak, Harlan, Kentucky, as an example, had a sign when you drove into the city that said the population is 3,000. And when you got down there to Kaywood High School gym, it held 3,300, and that sucker's full. We got everybody in towns in the damn building, you know I mean? So, you know, we, we were doing something right, and those things were critical. Those Harlands and those Hazard Kentuckys and the and the, the Maryville, Tennessees and La Follettes and the, the little small towns were critical to that success of the, that southeastern territory, and you just had to work them. You had to make sure your matches were great. One more listener question here this week, Ron, and this one is from Jeff Baldron in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, probably best known as the host of Breaking Kayfabe, a fine program on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And here's his question for you. This is a good one. Can you give me a reason why Joe LaDuke never got a run against Bruno or Backland in the WWF? Seems like a natural heel opponent, wrestling politics, timing not right, or something else? Super question. That's really good. See, you got to know Joe LaDuke. Uh, and I know Joe LaDuke very well. Joe LaDuke came from Montreal, started wrestling for me in Southeastern. I just started my business. It had been probably a year, maybe a year and a half when Joe shows up. Joe LaDuke is a big-hearted son of a gun. He's 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 he is a he's an unusual person uh he's like i said he just got a big heart and he wanted to go out there and give everything every night he wanted to do things that was far beyond what anybody else would do uh i just got one real quick example uh he 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 he, he did a the deal with a concrete block with him and and the mongolian stomper which stomper broke a concrete block on his head uh, with a sledgehammer, Gorgeous George Jr. hit him, hit the block on top of Stomper's head and broke it. And then Stomper broke the block on Joe LaDuke's head. Uh, and Joe LaDuke spent five days in the hospital, almost broke his neck, uh, almost killed him. It was a, it was a horrible thing when I watched it back. And then when he finally got well enough to wrestle, he came in and I said, Joe, I want to give you the personality profile today. We used to run a segment in the middle of the show, which was three to five minutes. You'd talk about things sometimes even other than wrestling. But this was, I said, Joe, take it. I'm going to give you whatever you want. Uh, no. So he comes on there and he sits down and he's got his axe. Like he's got a real axe. You know, he's in the Canadian. He always wore the shirts and the whole deal to look like a Canadian, and uh, like a like a uh, somebody you know a logger you know somewhere up in Canada. Lumberjack. Had that lumberjack. He was a big lumberjack, big brawny, bald. Uh, you know, not particularly handsome. You know, but now he's coming out of the hospital and he sits down there with Les Thatcher and, and we don't know what he's going to do. He brings the knife, the uh, axe out there and it's a two, double bladed axe and he has it sharp, so sharp that 
he's he says what he wants to say and then he says i'm going to do something today i'm going to make a blood oath that i'm going to get even and uh, and he took that axe blade and he put it on his inside of his forearm and he cut down his I never saw anything. Blood went both sides off of his arm, just flowing off into the floor. I was, and I'm in the control room, and I was like, "Oh my God, man, this is, geez, this is too much," you know. And that's what Joe was willing to give. Now, Joe was he 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 had that good, great attitude about what he was willing to give, but at the same time, Joe had a a little flaw in his personality about uh, being business. Uh, you know, sometimes he, he had his own ideas about what were good and what were bad. Uh, that, I think, in this case, we're talking about putting Joe against Bruno or Backlund. Uh, Joe could work with anybody. He's a big monster son of a gun. Uh, he He didn't mind bleeding. He wanted to bleed. You know, he's one of those guys that just wanted to. And he could have probably had some great programs with Bruno and Backlund. But he might have early on talked to the booker, might have asked him about, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And he got the wrong answer from Joe. And uh, that is that's that's poison right there for you as a wrestler. Uh, you wanna, you don't wanna ever let your booker know that you've got a limit somewhere, or that you're not happy with what his ideas are. If you do that, you're going to limit yourself as to how much money you're going to make, whether you're going to get that big shot and that top shot. Uh, and that was the top shot, obviously. Bruno and Backlund, they're your champions uh, for for Vince Senior and. Uh, you know, Joe's darn sure big enough. He darn sure, you know, it would have been reasonable for him to beat Bruno and to beat Backlund, no doubt about it. But I think he probably somehow killed that deal early on so that he was never going to get in that position. A lot of people know of the famous clip from Memphis TV of Joe taking the axe to his arm, taking the blood oath, and Lance Russell looking horrified. A lot of people, because the footage isn't really out there, probably don't even realize that he had done that in Southeastern. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Southeastern. There's nothing of Southeastern. There's nothing out there anywhere of Southeastern. Maybe just a few clips here and there. Uh, but Southeastern, a lot of things came from Southeastern, happened in Southeastern before they ever happened anywhere else. Uh, not only with the Knoxville operation, but as of later on in the late 70s, when I go and decide to, to buy the Gulf Coast down there and take it to the Gulf Coast, I'm going to have I'm going to have uh, Hulk wrestling against Andre long before Vince ever sees it, long before Vince ever knows about it. You know, I'm going to do things in Southeastern. There are going to be things that are going to be people are going to go, well, that never happened. That never happened. Well, it's happened. It either happened in Knoxville or it might have happened in Pensacola. But there's a lot of events and a lot of things that happened in that company in that Southeastern that uh, took place in other places. And people act like, well, that's about to be the first time it ever happened. This was done, I can tell you, in 1975 or 74. Joe had never been to Memphis at that point. He'd never worked Memphis. Like everyone else, Ron, I can't wait 
for this story to continue next week. And as we wrap things up, a few notes for the listeners. We're going to move back the release of the rest of the Caribbean Chaos story until Sunday, April 1st. We have a lot of big plans for April. It's going to be a very cool month for you listeners of the Studcast. We will also now be releasing Super Studcast number four with, I was about to say the Tennessee Stud, I had to stop myself, with Robert Fuller on Sunday, April 15th. That's right, the Fuller Brothers exclusively a super stud cast at tnstud.com as well as patreon.com slash studcast all for the price of only $2.99. You also get access to the Andre the Giant, the Ron Wright, the Caribbean Chaos Super Studcast, and the rest of the story for each of those where the Tennessee Stud goes over your questions and answers the rest of the story about those characters. Once again, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast of course you can like the tennessee stud on facebook ron fuller the tennessee stud you can also follow him on instagram and twitter at ron fuller welch you can follow me on twitter at great brian last you can follow the arcadian vanguard podcast network on twitter at super podcasts you can hear me each week on the 605 super podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcast and until next week For the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story will continue. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So fool Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.